and welcome to the History and Philosophy of Physics podcast. I'm Tegan Phillips. This is episode 12. Where are we, anyhow? I want to finish off this second season of the podcast with an episode or two on Aristotle, but before that, I thought it would be good to step back from the narrative of natural philosophers of ancient Greece and take a bit of a broader look at Greece in this period. How was ancient Greece structured in the 7th to 4th centuries, and how did natural philosophy, or early science, fit into its culture? What are some of the particular things about Greece that led to the development of the ideas and ways of thinking put forth by the subjects of the podcast so far? Of course, this episode will not in any way be an in-depth look at the broader history of Greece in this early period. Greece has a very long and complex history which is being covered in a number of other excellent podcasts, such as Ancient Greece Declassified and Casting Through Ancient Greece. Even discussion of the questions of why ancient Greek natural philosophy arose in this time and place, and what its role was in ancient Greek culture, could probably fill an entire book and probably already has. With this episode, I only intend to take a fairly focused look at some of the things about the land and its peoples which relate to my story of the history and philosophy of physics. Let's start by talking about some dates. It's a bit boring, but it provides a very useful reference point with what was going on more broadly in other places during the lifetimes and movements we care about here. So, let's start with the question, when are we anyhow? The history of ancient Greece is generally divided into a handful of periods. There's the Stone Age, from about 10,000 to 3000 BCE. The earliest archaeological evidence of settlements and fortifications in parts of Greece date back to this period. Following the Stone Age was the Bronze Age, from about 3000 to 1100 BCE. Then, there was a collapse in civilization all throughout Greece and the Aegean, that region of the Mediterranean between Europe and Asia. This led to a period called the Dark Age of Greece, where knowledge of writing was lost, and which lasted from 1100 to about 750 BCE. Now, these periods have further subdivisions, like the Early and Late Bronze Ages, and there were many interesting things going on. But for our purposes, this is all prehistory to the periods of ancient Greece we have been concerned about. This podcast started looking at the origins of ancient Greek natural philosophy with Thales of Miletus, who was probably born sometime around the year 625 BCE. This places him within the time period of ancient Greece that followed the Dark Age, the Archaic Period, which lasted from about 750 to 480 BCE. There's a lot of notable things about the Archaic period, including the rise of the polis, or ancient Greek city-state, the development of the ancient Greek writing system, the first written Greek poems, the writings of Hesiod and Homer's epics The Iliad and The Odyssey, changes in art styles and types, the establishment of democracy in Athens, and the establishment of events which drew people from across the Greek world such as the Olympic Games, and dramatic or theatrical competitions. After the Archaic period came what is known as the Classical period of Ancient Greece, from 480 BCE to the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE. During the Classical period, democracy developed in Athens, the dramatic forms of tragedy and comedy were created, 
and figures such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle changed Western philosophy. This is probably the time period that many people think of when they think of ancient Greece. The final period of ancient Greece is called the Hellenistic period. This lasted from the death of Alexander in 323 BCE until about 30 BCE, and includes the fragmentation of Alexander the Great's empire after his death, as well as the Roman invasion of Greece in 146 BCE. This season of the podcast will conclude at the end of Classical Greece with the figure of Aristotle, who happens to have died only a year after Alexander the Great in 322 BCE. So, on the ancient Greek timeline, the people and ideas covered here in these first two seasons fit into the Archaic and the Classical periods, circa 625 to 322 BCE. Alright, that's the when. Now let's talk a bit more about the where. In individual episodes, I'd usually start by saying a little bit about each person being covered, including where they lived and some of what may have influenced their work and their ideas. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about ancient Greece more broadly, and how some of the places I mentioned earlier, like Miletus, Samos, and Athens, fit into the picture of Greece during the Archaic and Classical periods. I've included a link to a map of ancient Greece on the podcast posts on the website and social media pages, but broadly speaking, we are looking at the area of the southern Mediterranean in Europe, which constitutes modern-day Greece, the western part of Turkey, and the southern coast of Italy. There's mainland Greece, with cities like Athens and Delphi, and the many Greek islands. Across the Aegean Sea to the east of mainland Greece, and a little south of the center of the western coast of Turkey, is the region of Greek settlement which was called Ionia. This is where ancient Greek natural philosophy began, with Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes, all from the city of Miletus. There were many other Greek settlements and colonies up and down this coast, as well as along the coast of the Black Sea, which is the sea to the northeast of Istanbul, and basically all around the Mediterranean. The Greeks really got around. The other notable region that I've mentioned earlier in the podcast is called Magna Graecia, and it covers the Greek settlements around southern Italy and the island of Sicily. Some of the pre-Socratic philosophers, such as Parmenides, Zeno, and Empedocles, lived in Magna Graecia. After the Dark Age of Ancient Greece, when evidence of civilization started to reappear, there was a period of relative stability in the region. Of course, there were still battles and wars, like the famous Peloponnesian War fought between Athens and Sparta, with the help of their allies. But on the whole, ancient Greeks didn't need to focus most of their energies on day-to-day survival. They had reliable food sources, and agriculture was well established by this time. This region of the Mediterranean had, and indeed has, variety in its soil and environments, with mountains, fertile plains, and excellent access to the sea, as well as a fairly steady climate. Some regions could be self-sufficient, while others had land better suited to particular crops, such as olives, which were then traded for other goods. The political system of the polis gathered the peoples of ancient Greece together into what we roughly translate as city-states, such as the polis of Athens or of Sparta. 
ancient Greece was divided into hundreds of poles. Writing reappeared after the Dark Age, using the language and symbols we now know as Ancient Greek. People living in different poles had different dialects of Ancient Greek, such as Attic Greek, the language of classical Athens. There were currency systems, and slavery was an established part of Ancient Greek economies. Slave labor was used largely in areas like agriculture, mining, and quarrying. There were also many domestic slaves, who worked in the household or assisted merchants, and some slaves were used in crafts or trades, such as in shield factories. Trade with other peoples such as the Persians and Egyptians was very important during this time, and cities like Miletus and Ionia, which were located along western and eastern trade routes, became very wealthy commercial centers. Once people no longer have to focus so much on survival, what happens? Culture develops, jobs specialize, and some people begin to have more free time. What do you like to do with your free time when you're not working or taking care of your home? People spend time with family or friends, play games, read books, watch television, play sports, create art and music, write poetry, or make a podcast. Virtually all of these things were practiced by the ancient Greeks, with the exceptions of watching TV and making a podcast, of course, but only because the technology wasn't available to them. Leisure afforded the opportunity to look at the world, not only to find a meal and a mate, or keep watch for threats, but as an object of study in itself. People had time to throw javelins just to see how far they could get, They could worship a god like Dionysus in elaborate ways by creating plays to perform at annual festivals. They could explore the human psyche, and they could begin to think about why the world was the way it was, not from a religious perspective, but a physical one. Are there physical laws which govern the movement of the universe? Are there moral laws which people should follow? What makes life worth living? When people don't have to focus so much on how to live, some naturally begin to wonder why. What is living for? They consider existential questions, questions about their existence, and some people start to really wonder about the nature and existence of the universe. Thus, ancient Greek natural philosophy and proto-science were born. Now, not everyone had this free time or access to resources which would allow them to pursue such things. It was the aristocratic and merchant classes primarily that had this privilege, and mainly the men of these classes, upper class or citizen women, especially in the Athenian polis, being largely constrained to household roles. Athens was a profoundly misogynistic society, and between women and slaves, it was not a very nice place to live for far more than half of its inhabitants. Other ancient Greek polis were not so misogynistic, Sparta, for example, but many probably had slave classes. There is little evidence for women or slaves engaging in natural philosophy in ancient Greece. Not zero evidence, at least there were 17 notable female Pythagoreans listed in Iamblichus's Life of Pythagoras, but it is rare to have records of significant participation by women 
or by men from lower or slave classes in ancient Greek philosophy. Our first known ancient Greek natural philosopher, Thales of Miletus, had a career as a trader which made him rather wealthy, and he was also an engineer. So he had the time and means later in his life to basically think and talk about the physical nature of the universe. He had also likely been exposed to many different cultures, which had different religions, myths, systems of mathematics, different ways of explaining and describing the world around them. Pythagoras was also born in a wealthy trading center, Samos in his case, and he may have been the son of a gem engraver or a wealthy merchant, so it's reasonable to assume his family was fairly well-to-do. And some early philosophers, like Anaximander of Miletus, were involved in politics and the governance of their city, polis, or their polis's colonies. Within a couple of generations, some of the scientifically and philosophically inclined were probably able to make their living as teachers or tutors, like Aristotle. The development of ancient Greek natural philosophy wasn't because the ancient Greeks were some race of geniuses, though some of them, like Aristotle, were undoubtedly very intelligent, clever, and creative people. They were also in the right place at the right time, having a favorable geography, good trade links, wealth and resources, and political and social systems which created a civilization that afforded them the luxury of pursuing inquiry into the nature of the world and of humanity. Okay, so that's a bit about the where and the why of this. And as I mentioned, there is much, much more that could be said about ancient Greece at this time in history. But I'd like to turn now towards the question of what? What was science in archaic and classical Greece? I'm sure I've spoken a bit about this earlier in the podcast. There wasn't really any such thing as ancient Greek science or ancient Greek physics. It was all mingled together with other sciences and with philosophy. It fell somewhere within philosophia, love of wisdom, and episteme, knowledge. It did manage to be separate, although still closely related to technology, or techne, ancient Greek craft or art. There's a quote from Aristotle's Metaphysics, which tells us a bit about the ancient Greek perspective on the development of knowledge and technology or crafts, at least in his day. At first, the inventor of any art, techne, which went further than the ordinary sensations, was admired by his fellow men, not merely because some of his inventions were useful, but as being a wise and superior person. And as more and more arts were discovered, some relating to the necessities and some to the pastimes of life, the inventors of the latter were always considered wiser than those of the former, because their branches of knowledge did not aim at utility. The first thing of importance is that there's a link Aristotle makes here between knowledge and technology, invention or art as it's translated in this passage. Secondly, he says that the inventors who created things that are recreational, for example, musical instruments, things that relate to some of the pastimes of life, were always considered wiser than inventors who created practical and useful things. 
This is perhaps because it showed a certain level of prestige or accomplishment. It's evidence that people don't need to focus on what's useful for daily life or survival. They can spend time on less practical pursuits, like you can only do in an accomplished and relatively stable society. There's a value in making things for the sake of making things, or making things for fun, not to solve some problem. A few paragraphs later in his book, Aristotle says, Knowledge and understanding, which are desirable for their own sake, are most attainable in the knowledge of that which is most knowable. For the man who desires knowledge for its own sake will most desire the most perfect knowledge, and this is knowledge of the most knowable, and the things which are most knowable are first principles and causes, for it is through these and from these that other things come to be known. And it is through wonder that men now begin and originally began to philosophize, wondering in the first place at obvious perplexities, and then by gradual progression raising questions about the greater matters too, e.g. about the changes of the moon and of the sun, about the stars, and about the origin of the universe. Now he who wonders and is perplexed feels that he is ignorant. Thus the myth-lover is in a sense a philosopher, since myths are composed of wonders. Therefore, if it was to escape ignorance that men studied philosophy, it is obvious that they pursued science for the sake of knowledge, and not for any practical utility. This sense of wonder about the mysteries of life in the universe certainly drives many modern scientists. However, many scientists today are also driven by utility, or the potential usefulness of discoveries, such as a cure for a disease. We do still have researchers who search for knowledge primarily for its own sake, even though practical applications of it may be found later on, and usually are. However, the ancient Greeks seem to have had a much more general preference for finding knowledge just to have knowledge, whether this was through rational thinking, mathematics, or physical investigation. The use of techne to solve practical problems was separated out, called mechanics, and considered more of an applied science. But even then it would sometimes be worked around so that the creation or use of a certain machine, a lever for example, would be written about in a way that relates it to basic principles, like the nature of a circle. Thus, the aim of studying this machine wasn't its useful applications, but rather how it could be used as a sort of proof of fundamental principles. Later on, in the early Hellenistic age, there was an ancient Greek named Archimedes. His name may be familiar because he formulated what is now called the Archimedes Principle, a law in fluid mechanics which states that an object placed in a fluid, like water, will be subject to an upwards force that is equal to the weight of the fluid that was displaced by the object. More familiar is probably the story of his discovery, recorded by the Roman architect Vitruvius in the 1st century BCE. The king of Syracuse, Heron, hired Archimedes to show that a new crown was not made of pure gold. It was a difficult problem. 
Archimedes was taking a bath when he figured out the solution. As he got into the bathtub, Archimedes noticed that the water level changed. More precisely, that the water displaced was equal to the weight of his body as it was immersed. Since gold has a different weight than any of the other metals available to the crown maker, Archimedes had found a way to prove whether or not the crown was made of pure gold. Upon realizing this, Archimedes forgot all else and went running naked through the streets of Syracuse from his home to the king's, shouting Eureka, a word which is now synonymous with discovery and invention. The first century CE philosopher Plutarch wrote this about Archimedes. Archimedes's intellect, however, was so great and his mind so deep, and he possessed such a wealth of scientific theory that, although from inventions such as these, for example, siege engines, he earned the reputation and fame for more than human sagacity, he had no desire to leave behind treatises about these matters. He considered the occupation of an engineer, and, in short, every art that applied itself to practical needs, as ignoble and vulgar, and he focused his intellectual ambition only on those subjects the beauty and remarkable character of which were intrinsically free of necessity. So here we have probably the greatest Greek engineer from the 3rd century BCE choosing to write about more theoretical and scientific topics like geometry and optics, and not writing any technical manuals about his great inventions. And this is just one prime example of what seems to have been a broader trend among the ancient Greeks. A final important piece of context is the social nature of these scientific or philosophical inquiries. Obviously, for philosophy, you have an example like Socrates. Socrates doesn't seem to have written anything down, and today is known for having engaged in philosophy by engaging with others, having conversations and asking questions to get people to think more critically, now called the Socratic method. Socrates is probably an extreme example, but it's highly unlikely that any early natural philosopher worked wholly or even primarily in isolation. Even Thales, the first to start recording early philosophical investigations, was followed quickly into this field by his fellow Milesian Anaximander, who is generally regarded as having been either a pupil or contemporary of Thales, a fellow inquirer. They had different theories, but they were trying to explain the same kind of thing, and would undoubtedly have debated with each other. The idea of philosophy as a debate, and the need to argue for your theories, is one of the markers of ancient Greek philosophy, which separates it from the worldviews and ways of thinking of other cultures, such as the Egyptians and Babylonians. It required thinkers to follow a line of reasoning which could, or at least should, be demonstrated, and divided it further from religion. Debate also played an important role in some polis, particularly the polis of Athens. The political structure of Athens marked the city as a place for debate. Public debates were, and still are, a common part of scientific and philosophical inquiry, 
as is the writing up and publishing of theories, which are then read by others interested in that kind of topic. The debates, in particular, add another layer, because while the primary goal may still be showing you've found some truth about the world, you also want to win. Of course, you want to win because you're right, but winning brings with it some prestige. Writing itself was also something prestigious, before it became a common technology and common way of transferring knowledge. In the early 4th century BCE, a treatise or book by someone like Anaxagoras would have cost a drachma, which was roughly one day's wages for a laborer, and public libraries were not at all common. The 6th century ruler of Athens, Pisistratus, is said to have made some books available to be read publicly, but this would only have benefited those who were educated enough to be able to read, and only in Athens. Aristotle supposedly had a library, but this was his personal collection. It wasn't an institution and may have been available only to his students, not the public. Prestige, as a speaker, writer, intellectual, etc., was another goal of ancient Greek technology and inquiry. It certainly worked for some. Pythagoras got elevated to semi-divine status by the Neo-Pythagoreans, and Empedocles at least claimed to have been honored as someone divine. And I think it'd be hard to argue there's more famous philosophers in the West than Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Aristotle was regarded highly enough in his day to be called upon by the king of Macedon to tutor his son, the young Alexander, who would later create a significant empire and become known as Alexander the Great. But Aristotle's story will have to wait for another couple episodes. Alright, that's all I wanted to cover with this episode. Hopefully you got a bit of a refresher about ancient Greece, or a better idea about how philosophy and an early kind of scientific inquiry began in this region. Until next time, you can check out the website for the podcast at historyandphilosophyofphysicspodcast.ca, follow the podcast on Facebook or Twitter, just search at histphilphyspod, and you can send me an email at histphilphyspod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and take care, everybody.